Lord, we want to stop and say, thank you for thinking about us. Where would we be if you hadn't extended your love? Where would we be, God, if you hadn't made yourself known to us in Scripture and in our everyday life? Jesus, if, if you hadn't taken the audacious step to leave all of heaven and glory to make yourself small so that we could experience life in you, we would be bankrupt, God. But you have chosen to love us this way, and so we wanna, we wanna pour our attention towards you this morning, Jesus, that whatever you would have to say to us, we would be listeners, learners, and more than that, we would put into practice the things that are important to you for the good of our life, for the good of the world. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Okay, so we're almost here. We're, we're making our way towards Christmas Eve. It's a big deal for us. Four o'clock uh, next Sunday, not 10, 4 p.m. We're gonna get, be gathered here and there'll be hot chocolate and cookies and all the, the songs. I've, I've gotten a foretaste of the songs. You don't, you don't wanna miss it. And the whole stage will be set and it's a beautiful time. And then we'll have about an hour, hour and 15 minutes and you will leave here and the candles and the pictures and we'll have the photo booth. It'll be glorious. And then the real action, dinner, Christmas dinner. Um, I don't know if you guys make a big deal of it. We actually don't because we've been here all day. So it'll probably be Chinese for us. That's, that's our Christmas dinner, sorry. Um, unless you want to cater it, I'll, I'll give you my address. But um, and, and then we do Christmas PJs. I don't know if you do that. Some of you don't do the Christmas PJs. We do brand new Christmas PJs. And it's a surprise uh, to everyone other than the person who purchased it, which is never me. And, and so it's like, oh, we do the Christmas PJs and we take the photos by our fireplace and then we, and then we uh, eventually go to bed. And I'm the first one up because Christmas morning is where the unwrapping begins. And my family, they're not as morning as I am. But I think four o'clock is a good time to get up and uh, just, let's get this party rolling. And um, we have our traditions. Christmas is, or at least it can be, the most wonderful time of the year. Now, it is not for everyone, but it, it can be. So what we're trying to do here on Sundays is as we're making our way, thinking about the advent, the coming of Jesus and his promise to come again, because it's just the beginning of the story. It's not the end of the story. We're trying to see it with fresh eyes, which, by the way, is hard. It's hard to see the most common thing, Christmas, trees, presents, manger seeds, it's hard to look at it with fresh eyes, but we're trying to do, trying to. And so this year, we're looking at the unexpected nature of it. What are the things that are in the Christmas account that are actually, for the first year, they're totally unexpected? And the reason we're doing that is because we want to grow in our expectation. God wants to surprise us with revealing himself, but sometimes we're just so in the routine that we miss him. Okay, so Stephen helped us a couple of weeks ago, and we looked at the unexpected nature of Jesus' coming and enfleshing. I mean, God had promised from the beginning, Adam and Eve, they fall into their temptation to sin, they listen to the enemy's lies, and God immediately says, out of the woman is going to come one who's going to crush the head of the serpent, evil, death, and who's going to bring victory to the people. From day one, God had promised that out of a woman would come the Savior. Now, that's what people expected. What was unexpected is that it would be God. Now, we just assume that. But, but early on, Mary and Joseph and nobody else 
thought that God was going to enter the womb. You see, for us, it's like ordinary. But for those who are hearing it, this was absolutely unexpected that God, the creator of the universe, would limit himself not just to earth, but to a baby's body. And that he would be really born and really grow and really skin his knees and really be hungry and tired and lonely and really experience his friends stabbing him in the back, metaphorically, Judas betraying him with a kiss, all his close ones desert him in his time of need. Like that God would allow himself to experience the broken world in order to rescue it. That was not expected. And Ryan helped us last week to see the unexpected nature of Jesus coming and being born in poverty. I mean, you think that a ruler is gonna be born in a ruler's home with a ruler's budget and a ruler's influence. And God decides to come in poverty, chooses to live in poverty, not that he couldn't receive, but he chose to give himself away. And so he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for the many. So, so the unexpected nature of Christmas is that God not only, only, only identifies with the poor, but he became poor so that we might become rich in relationship with him. And so the unexpected call to Christmas is to actually buck the trend because in our society, our society views those with more followers, more influence, more resources as more value. I saw an article just this morning talking about who's the richest Oregonian. And there was an article yesterday about Phil Knight, you know, in his, in his, uh, his charitable fund having $3.8 billion, and he gave away $212 million last, last year alone. And I, I applaud that there's that much resource to do good. And then I remember that Jesus, who was walking in the temple one day, saw a widow who had nothing, put two cents in the basket. And he said, that person has given the greatest gift. So our society has a way of viewing right and good and lovely, and yet God has a different view. And so the unexpected nature of Christmas is for us to step in to a God-influenced way of seeing the world. All right, today what we wanna do is we're gonna read a lot of Bible. We're gonna read all of Matthew 2, the whole chapter, like it or not. I was like, that was supposed to be funny. Uh, yeah, we're going to read all of it. Why? Because it's all good, and it's all Scripture, and it's all God-breathed. So I'm going to read Matthew 2, and we want to focus on places. We looked at God enfleshing himself in the person of Jesus and becoming poor so that we might become rich in the life of God. Now let's just look at all of Matthew 2, and I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to focus on the places. I'm just going to read it, but you focus on what places matter to God. All right. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw the star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, uh, pe all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where the Messiah was to be born? And they answered, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found them, uh, found out where the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As, as soon as you find him, report it to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, to, and the star they had seen, when it, was, when it rose, went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where they saw the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary and bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, quote, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, when Herod realized that He'd been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Quote, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. All right, we're almost done here. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared and dreamed of Joseph in Egypt. And he said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that uh, Archelaus was reigning in Judah in the place where his father Herod he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Sometimes it's just good. It's just good to just think about the big picture of what we celebrate on Christmas. And when we come on Sunday afternoon at four o'clock, we'll take some of these portions and we'll remind ourselves again. Okay, that was a lot. Did you notice, though, there were places? I want us to think about the unexpected nature of locations. What does God have to tell us about spots, places, neighborhoods, cities, towns? What can we learn? Well, let's just think of this first. Where is Jesus born? He is born in Bethlehem, right? Now, to those who don't know the scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, for the Savior to be born in Bethlehem makes no sense. Here's why. When you look at places of influence in their day, the biggest place of influence was Rome. Rome is the superpower like nothing in all of history prior. And so Caesar reigns not in Bethlehem, not in Israel, but in Rome, in Italy, modern Italy. 
And so you think that the Savior would be born there because he's going to be the king, but that's not the case. And then you look at the land called Israel, and you think, where's the center? It's Jerusalem. It's the house of the temple. And up on the hill, in all of Jerusalem, you go there today, and you'll see it. On the, on the top of the hill, you see the place where God meets with people. And the whole temple mount, that's the place where Jesus would be born, right? No, he's born in Bethlehem. So if, if, let's throw it to Oregon because some of these places don't sound familiar. Uh, and where are the places of power and influence in Oregon? Well, you'd say Portland, right? As Portland votes, so goes the state because there's more people than anywhere else. Or you may look at Salem, not as exotic as Portland, but it's a place of government power. And so if you want to influence, all you need to do is influence Portland and influence Salem, and you have influence in Oregon. So in, in that regard, Jesus was born in Drain. Um, it's a real town, by the way, in Oregon. Drain. And uh, I, I'm, no offense if you're from Drain. I, I'm like literally sorry for you. I'm sorry. But as a name, Drain? Um, I, I, I'll make a confession. I've never been to Drain. So I'm, I'm, I'm making fun of a place I've never been. But it would be that obscure Drain. Um, followed by boring. Uh, names that just, they make no sense as a location. But in it, we see that Jesus is not born in your typical place, but he's not your typical baby. And God displays his power in ways that often surprise us. Now, this is to the person who doesn't know the biblical story, but the person who does know the biblical story knows that the king, the Messiah, is going to be born in Bethlehem. So you get a contrast in, Magi, in, in Matthew that tells us this because the Magi who are from the east, by the way, from the east in the early part of the story is never a place you want to be or go. The east is the place of brokenness. The east is the place of sin. The east is the place of wandering. The east is the place of exile. And so to go east is not a good thing. When you're reading the Bible, it's also metaphor. And so the Magi come from the place of loneliness and brokenness and not God's blessing. And they are a mix. We don't know much about them, but they're part uh, astronomers. They look into the stars because they knew in their day that if there's the, uh, the birth of someone important, it was often foretold in the stars. And so they see a new star and they're perplexed. But they're not just astronomers, they're also astrologers and they're looking to interpret, could this be a sign from the gods that the gods are going to do something big, and so they pursue. It's not until they, they come and they hear from Herod's advisors that they realize, wait, the star's direction is not haphazard. What's happening in the heavenlies, which, by the way, it's interesting, God is making himself known to people who don't know the Bible. You should think about that. God is in an all-out pursuit to get people's attention, and so he uses what's within their cultural framework, and he gets their attention, and then he brings them into the truth. And they bring out the people who know the Bible who say, well, we know that the king is going to be born in Bethlehem. And by the way, the whole idea of Matthew telling us about the Magi is they were looking for a king because the star was pointing to a king that was going to be born. And Matthew wants to let us know that he's not just a baby this is the birth of royalty. And it doesn't happen in the center of power that you and I are used to. And this tells us 
something about the nature of God. We're looking for God to do something in D.C. Because if he does something in D.C., America will be changed. And I say, if something happens in D.C., great. But God could do it in Drain. And God could do it in your neighborhood. And God could do it anywhere. He does not need to follow the rules of mankind. He rules over mankind, and he can follow his own rules. And so God is at work in Bethlehem. But we know, those of you who know the Bible, the reason that Jesus is going to be born there is because Bethlehem is the birthplace of the most important Israeli king, King David. And the only reason that Bethlehem has any spot in the story is because God chose a shepherd boy. David, who was not known by many, but he was faithful over the animals that that his father had entrusted him with. And out of nowhere, God chose this rugged and good-looking, because the Bible calls him good-looking. Interesting factoid. Like, he was handsome. We need to know that. But David, this young boy who fights off bears and lions and, and all sorts of predators to protect his family inheritance, is actually gonna rule over the nation And so Bethlehem is predicted as the place that one day, Micah 5.2, if you know your Bible, the prophets foretold, quote, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Before Jesus arrives, the prophets tell us all of Israel's cities are going to be affected and impacted, and all of Israel as a country is actually going to come to, rule, to ruin. But you, small Bethlehem, will not be forgotten. And the place where God worked is the place where God will work again. And so what you see in the Bible is often the prophets talk about multiple fulfillments. So, so yes, they're, they're pointing towards what happened in real history. This is the place where royal kings come from, Bethlehem is the city of kings. But it's actually not just talking about David, and it's actually not just talking about Israel. It's pointing forward that Bethlehem is going to be a place where the greater shepherd, who is known to us as the good shepherd, Jesus, is going to be born. And he's not just going to rule over sheep, and he's not just going to rule over one country. But the prophecy is pointing towards what God's going to do. God wants to lead his people wherever they're born, wherever they are, and wherever they come from. And whatever country is in their background, whatever culture they come from, God wants to lead all of humanity. And it's in and through Jesus that that's going to happen. And Bethlehem is the place. Now, what does, that, what does that imply? What does that mean for us? You're going to have to wait. There's two more places. We're going to get to what this means for us because there's actually some real implication. But the second one is we know that Jesus is exiled in Egypt. Now, this is going to be very encouraging to those of you who are going through uncertain circumstances right now. The king is born in Bethlehem, and then the Magi come, and they're obviously there for a while, because Herod then says, ooh, he's going to murder the children who are two years and younger. So it doesn't seem like Jesus is in Bethlehem for like 10 minutes. It seems like there's an extended period there. But then quickly, he's warned to leave and flee for Egypt, which is strange. You think that God, if God is working in your life, everything's going to go well. You think if God is at work or if things are going well for you, God's blessing is over your life. And is that what we see in the life of Jesus? That's not what we see at all. We actually see that 
when he's very young, his life is going to be under attack. And so he's warned by the heavenlies that you need to leave and you need to go to Egypt because, because Herod is after you. And because it's another country, there's a safe space. We know at the same time that Jesus was born that there was a large Jewish community in Egypt. And so he would be protected by his own countrymen. And, and, and Egypt is going to be a safe space. But why Egypt? Like, why, why not somewhere else? Well, we get hints. We know in the biblical story, those of you who have read or heard uh, Matthew quotes from Hosea, the prophet, chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. So Jesus spends a time in exile, out of his country, out of his comfort zone. And for those of us who have gone through seasons of struggle and pain and uncertainty, and you you ask in this kind of Christmas time, God, are you real? And if you're real, why is my life a mess? Now, those of us who've read the Bible or considered what God had said before at the time of Jesus, we know that Egypt is a place of suffering. We know that God's people were made slaves in Egypt. And they suffered for hundreds of years. But, but God had always wanted to bring his people out into a place of flourishing and love. God always wanted to shepherd his people and lead their lives and guide their lives. And so in real history, at the right time, when these people cried out to God, God answered, God delivered them out of Egypt, and he brought them through the Red Sea by miracle, and he called them his son or his children. And this is what we need to remember, that when we say that God wants to lead us and guide us, it's not like just servants or slaves. God wants us to be part of his family. He wants to adopt us. And so in real history, you read the book of Exodus, you'll see it. God took a huge group of people and made them his family, and he delivered them like a good father. And so in history, we see a great deliverance. Moses did not lead the people out. God did. Moses did not provide for the people in the desert for 40 years. God did. Moses didn't guide them to the land. God did. Moses didn't give them the way to live on the mountain. God did. And, and Moses didn't get them into the land of promise that is now called Israel, God did. And we need to remember, God is at work in all circumstances, even when we don't see it. God is at work in your life and my life, even in the middle of suffering and trial and torment. God is not absent. He's not always visible in the way that you and I want to see him, but he's always working. And for those of us who follow the Lord Jesus, he will even work those evil things for our good. Those things are still evil, Egypt is never portrayed as a place of blessing. It was evil for them to enslave other people and torture them and kill them. Evil is evil, but God rules over evil and he will somehow, even in our life, he will turn things that we regret or things that we can't seemingly get over and he will turn them for good. See, places matter. And so Bethlehem is the place of promise where this deliverer who will this king who will rule over the world, his name is Jesus. And, and Egypt is the place, out of it comes his son. So 
So what happens in history, right, God pulling his people and rescuing them out and calling them his children is pointing to the ultimate fulfillment. The exodus in exodus is not about just Israel and a group of people into a physical piece of land. Its greatest fulfillment is in the coming of the Lord Jesus. And out of Egypt, he's brought out his son. And now Jesus is going to be the good shepherd that's going to lead you and me and everyone who will listen into a life with God's blessing. Now, hear me. When I say God's blessing, I don't mean gifts under a tree. I mean real life. That God wants to be with me at work. And God wants to be with you in your neighborhood. And he wants to infuse life into your marriage or your singleness. And that if he gives you kids, he wants to give you wisdom on how to lead them and guide them into the way of Jesus. Or if you're empty nesting, that he wants to take these later years and make them your best years. And by best years, I don't mean beaches and margaritas. I mean purpose, where your life has meaning in him and you're able to take all the goodness of God and pass it on to the next generation in love. What I'm saying is that every place matters, and even Egypt matters. So Jesus steps into the place of suffering Egypt to bring us out. And his, his escape to Egypt and his going through suffering is going to foreshadow, by the way, the end of his life. So this out-of-Egypt experience He's pointing ahead to what's going to happen at the end of his life. And at the end of his life, you remember that Jesus is brutally beaten and murdered for our good. Nobody kills him. He lays down his life as a ransom for many. And that picture in Exodus, what kept people safe was the Passover lamb, the perfect spotless lamb. If they put the blood over the doorpost and they stepped in, they would be safe. And this, these, all of these pictures, they really happen in history. They're really historical. They're really valuable for those people, but they're valuable for us because they point forward to the unique one, Jesus, who will himself be the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is beautiful, and it reminds us that God is moving everywhere at all times. All right, what do we do to apply this? Okay, you have to wait. One more, one more, and then, and then we'll look at what we do. He's raised in Nazareth. This is my favorite. Uh, having been warned, verse 22, in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was filled, it was said through the prophets, and then notice there's no quotes, that he would be called a Nazarene. So Bethlehem has its roots in history. You see it in the biblical story. And Egypt has roots in history. You see it in the biblical story. God had worked there, and those were foreshadowing the bigger picture in Jesus. And then you come to Nazareth, which is not in the Old Testament at all. <laughs> Love it. All you have about Nazareth, uh, you, I'll just give you a little quote from John. If you want to know what Nazareth was like, in John's gospel, when um, Philip finds his buddy Nathaniel and says, look, I've met, I've met like the one Moses in, wrote about in the law and about who the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, and quote, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Sounds like drain. Nathaniel asked, come and see, said Philip. What does it mean that Jesus is a Nazarene? Um, it means that he's from a nowhere town. I want us to think about this contrast. It's not Jesus of Bethlehem. 
Although that's where he was born. Like I'm Jose of New York, Brooklyn to be particular, Park Slope to be very specific, Methodist Hospital to be like ultra specific, um, and then room 1232, which I, I just made up. I don't, I don't, I don't, I was there, but I don't, I don't. Okay, that's, so I am Hosea of New York, but Jesus is not known as Jesus of Bethlehem, and he's not known as Jesus of Egypt. Why is he Jesus the Nazarene? A helpful quote, take a photo, it's too long for you to write. It appears that Matthew is drawing attention to the thrust of the Old Testament prophecy about the Christ rather than any one passage. Jesus went to Galilee, so that was written about him and the prophets will be fulfilled. And so we see this in his being called a, quote, Nazarene, a citizen of an obscure and unimportant town. Had he been known as Jesus of Bethlehem, he would have the aura of one who came from the royal city. There would have been overtones of messianic majesty. No, but Jesus, quote, the Nazarene carried with it overtones of contempt. We're to understand the prophets as pointing to the one who would be despised and rejected. And Jesus is fulfilling this by his connection with obscure Nazareth, end quote, from Leon Morris in his commentary on Matthew's gospel. This is really, really important for us to think about. Jesus is okay with identifying with nowhere. Jesus is okay with identifying with someone who's considered a nobody. Jesus is okay with identifying with the poor. He's okay with identifying with those in exile or those who've been displaced or those who find themselves even in our city because there's war in their city. Jesus has no problem identifying with the homeless. He never owned a home. Some of us own two, three, and four or more. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is okay without that. And that's, I think, the beauty of places. So you have Bethlehem in Egypt, in Nazareth. What does all this location tell us? Well, I think it reminds us about God, right? God's always working, especially in places that we would not expect. And this, by the way, is good news for you because I think for some of us, we just disqualify ourselves by whatever. And we, and we say like, well, yeah, they have or they did or they are from or their connection. If only I had more, then I think I might be useful to God. And no way, that's not the good news of Christmas. The good news is you could come with nothing and God is enough. You could come from nowhere and God is enough. I love the fact, let's just think of like our little American experience. And if you're old enough to remember Billy Graham, if you are, if not, Google his name. Like if you don't know Billy Graham, you should definitely Google his name. But, but probably one of the most important figures in, in modern American history, let alone religious history, where is he from? A farm outside of Charlotte. Nowhere. He's a nobody. And God uses nobodies who are willing to follow the way of Jesus to help everybody. And that's your story, even though your may, name may not be remembered like Billy Graham. I think of like one of my heroes, Luis Palau, who's for many of us, he's now with Jesus, but he has Oregon roots. Where is he from? Nowhere in Argentina. And his dad dies when he's just a kid. 
And he's got to take care of five younger sisters. And he's faithful to learn the Bible and tell people the way of Jesus. And God raises him up and sends him to the ends of the earth. He, why did he live in Oregon? Because he went to Multnomah and, and met Pat, who would become his wife. And her roots were here, so he had to obey. And, and that's just, that's as simple as it was. And so right now, I think he's like number 30-something of all-time influential Oregonians, and he wasn't even born here. He wasn't even raised here. He didn't even move here until his late 30s. But in his life, just because he followed Jesus, God can take anyone from anywhere and do whatever he wants if we will allow him. So don't disqualify yourself. I'm, I'm going to make it very simple. How is God working in your workplace or your neighborhood? In what ways is God working right now? Someone says, well, I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not Luis Palau. I'm just me. Okay, you live somewhere and you're around some people. Could it be that God's working right now? There are people who didn't notice that Jesus had arrived in Bethlehem. By the way, Bethlehem was not big. When they think, oh man, they killed all of the boys that were two or younger in Bethlehem? Wow, they could have killed 10. It wasn't big. Like, it wasn't like a million people in Bethlehem. It was a small, obscure town. But could it be that God's at work where you're at right now? And maybe you haven't been awakened to that yet. And here's the good news. You can. Okay, so, well, how can I be awakened? I, I, I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to dare you to take a couple of a, these unexpected invitations. And I would just suggest, you could bake something or buy it if you're not good. Um, put together a basket and just bless your neighbors with something kind. Uh, and then, don't be ashamed to include in it. This doesn't have to be the center of attention, but say, I'm not sure if you have a place to celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. A bunch of us sing and enjoy one another on Christmas Eve. I'd love for you to join me. That could be stepping in to the unexpected way. Do you know it could be someone who is not thinking of coming will be here seated in your seat right now in seven days, because we were awakened that the angels are heralding that God has come to earth, but it's the Magi who are attentive enough, and they're not even God followers, and they don't have a Bible, but they're more clued in than the people of God. What would it look like for us to see every neighborhood as God's space and do something about it? I think that's our invitation. It reminds us when we look at these spaces that anything's possible. God could do anything through anyone, anywhere. And, and again, unfortunately, we limit ourselves by our background or our current sinfulness or neglect. Look, God knows everything about you and he's still enamored with you. No, I might not be enamored with you and your spouse might not be enamored with you anymore and your friends may think you're like, oh, kind of ordinary, but God is crazy in love with you. Crazy in love with you. He goes to the nth degree to find you. And so how do I know that? He became poor. 
so that I, through his death and resurrection, can become rich in my relationship with him. Friends, what excuses are you making why God can't or work, uh, can't or won't work through you? Let's just get real. What excuses are we making? Why God, why God wouldn't want to use me or why God wouldn't want to transform me or why God wouldn't want to do more than I would expect. What excuses are we making? And the beauty of Christmas and Bethlehem and Egypt and Nazareth is that, that God chose to work through very ordinary places and ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And he wants to continue to do that right now through you. So I'm going to invite you to actually respond uh, today. How, how, how can you respond? If you're here this morning and you've not yet trusted that this Jesus who was born a baby and lived a perfect life and on the cross died in our place, the sin that we committed deserved death, but Jesus took it willingly, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he could bring us to God. And he rose again, and he's alive, and he's working, and he's willing to save and able to save. If you've not yet responded to his love and said, I trust him, Lord, do it in my life, then do it today. And I would invite you in a moment when we pray to say, Lord Jesus, rescue me. It's that uncomplicated. I trust you are who you say you are. I'm asking you to rescue me, and he will do it for you because he's that good. For the rest of us, I think the right response is to say, God, I am available even though I am scared to death. The moment I said, hand out a card, some of you started perspiring profusely because you're like, wait a minute. Are you saying, are you saying like telling people what I actually believe? No, I actually just said, hand out a card. I I literally didn't say, say anything. Now, if you want to say like, I love Jesus and I think he's the greatest, then go for it. But I simply said, take a step towards helping someone else experience life in him. We, we need to respond and ask God to embolden us in this hour. It's the best week to talk about Jesus of the entire year because everyone's getting so giddy about their Christmas presents that they may be closer to thinking about the ultimate gift, Jesus. And so I'm going to invite you to stand, if you would, please. We're going to respond in worship. We're going to take communion in a few moments. But if you're here this morning and, and something's going on in your soul, uh, maybe you had a horrific week, can I invite you? Receive prayer. If you're new to our, our, our church, you're just stumbling in, you're visiting, we hear the Bible and then we respond. We take action. And so we... At the left and the right, some friends are going to go on. They put on a little lanyard that says prayer, and they simply want to pray God's goodness over your life. If there's something going on and you say, man, I'm stirred, I would invite you to receive prayer this morning. And when the singing begins, all you do is slip out of your seat and you walk to the side, and they're not going to ask you any questions. They're not going to grill you. They're not going to introduce themselves. They're going to give you a moment just to pray, and then they're going to come around and just pray God's blessing over your world. It's that simple. But it's powerful. And so I'd invite you, if you're, if you're in need of something this morning and you need God's touch, if you're feeling discouraged, uh, again, there are many reasons why we respond for prayer, but I would encourage you, uh, don't just think about it. And you say, well, when should I go? The moment you're thinking about it 
is a time that the Holy Spirit is prompting it. And sometimes what we're saying is no, because what will people think? And friends, I'm more concerned about what God thinks than what you think. And so I would encourage you to let go of that pretense and that fear and just take steps of faith. If you want to respond uh, to Jesus Christ and receive him, you can, you can do that there. Just go to one of the sides. I would just say, if you, if you do want to do that, then just tell the prayer person, just say, I want to follow Jesus. And they would love to pray for you. All right, God, you're always working. You're working in Hillsboro. You're working in Beaverton. You're working in Forest Grove, Cornelius, and Banks. You're working in Portland. You're working all over Oregon. You're working all over your universe because you're a God there's no one like you. We, though, those this morning who've heard your voice, we want to respond in ways that honor you and honor your word. So God, even help us to break off the shackles of fear and pride and actually respond to your goodness. And Lord, you know the needs of each one. You're the good shepherd. Care for your sheep this morning as they step out and follow you. God, to you be the glory now and forevermore, we pray. Amen.